Right. So, good morning. Because I like to write really very long preachers, we don't even really have time for an introduction today, to be honest. So we've got so much to do, we're just going to crack right on with it, and I would like to read the scripture that we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be talking about a parable today that is probably quite familiar to you, which is uh, the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. We've probably all read them a hundred times, but I want to read them to you again. Okay. So Matthew 13, 44 to 46, it's in your Bible. Obviously it's in your Bible. I guess it would be a bit sad if it was from somewhere else, wouldn't it? <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. I'm just going to pray and then we'll, we'll get on. Father, I pray that as your Holy Spirit has been with us while we worshipped you, Lord, that you will continue to rest your Holy Spirit on us as we hear from your words. Father, I thank you that your word is truth. And Father, I thank you that every inch and every drop of it is good for us. It's good for our souls. So Father, we, I pray we just want to bow down before you today and say, Lord, you be in charge. You give us the direction for our lives. God, we trust you and we want to listen to what you have to say. Amen. So, uh, without further ado, let's dig into the detail of these passages. They're quite similar stories on the face of it, but they're not identical, um, which means that we need to pay close attention to the words uh, in, that Jesus uses in order to understand what he's trying to say. So before we get to the meat of today's topic, I thought it was interesting to note that these parables tell us something important about how we are to approach mission as Christians. In fact, I would say they actually dispel two common misconceptions um, which can limit us as missionaries for the gospel. So the first misconception is that people that we know are not looking for the kingdom of God. We look around at the world and we see one that is full of pearl merchants. They are searching for something. Nearly put a Eurythmics quote in there, but I didn't. This is for the old people. Um, they're searching for it at work. They're searching for it at home, at the gym, at the club, at the pub. Maybe it's acceptance or money or power, security, popularity, status, whatever. People are looking for those things, finding them in some measure. But it's all too easy for us to be under the impression that everyone around us is quite happy with what they're looking for, happy without God, that we have nothing to offer those who, are, who have found what they seek, and nothing to comfort those who have not. But the truth is that the pearl merchant had no idea what he was looking for, not what he was really looking for. He went from market to market, you can imagine, picking up all manner of different pearls, small ones, big ones, shiny ones, whatever he could get to build up his collection. But the moment that he came across that perfect pearl, 
he realized that every other pearl he had collected was not what he had really been looking for. In the same way, we need to understand that the things of this world, the things that people look for, are always in some way a poor copy of what our desires were meant to be pointed towards. We may try and fill our intimacy need with sex or pornography, but that desire is meant to be fulfilled through ultimate intimacy with God. We may try to comfort ourselves with food and drink, but that returning hunger is meant to point us towards a God who ultimately satisfies forever. You know, if we go around looking at people saying, she won't want to hear about the gospel, she's too busy with her career, then we've missed something that is real and important. We need to reframe the way that we see the world. People all around us are looking for something that they cannot name because they do not know what it is yet. All the little pearls that we once looked for and that so many still look for are waiting to be cast aside when the real thing comes along, the kingdom of God. The second misconception is this. We believe that people need to be seeking the kingdom of God to find it. The man looking for the field is not looking for treasure. But when he actually stumbles across the treasure, the field quickly falls out of view. Everything changes for him. He's looking for a field and finds something completely different. This is probably more important because whilst the pearl merchant knew that something was missing, and when he found it, he identified that was what he had been looking for his whole life, the man buying the field does not know or understand what he is missing until he sees it. I can't count the number of people in my own life who seem to be just like that. They don't seem to be chasing a nagging want in their lives at all. They seem to be just fine. But you see, on my part, that is a dismal underestimation of the value and the striking beauty of the kingdom of God. How attractive it is. In this parable, the man who has no obvious interest in treasure at all suddenly becomes a possessed madman, hiding treasure in a field in the hopes that no one will stumble across him after him. You know, do you think he acted that way in any other field? No. It's what he has seen that changes him. Once he has seen the treasure, it is all that he can think of. Now, I wonder how many people you know who have never heard the gospel, except maybe through the warping lens of popular culture and a hostile world. How many of our colleagues, friends, and family have no understanding of the message of the cross? It's easy for us, for me, to look into a life like that and assume that they would have no interest in Jesus. But it's clear that there are some for whom the gospel will become an irresistible obsession. There are people in your life who will abandon their search for fields if only they see the real treasure of the gospel, if only we are brave enough to show it to them. In the end, my point is simple. Let's not be tricked into thinking that the people who are around us today, who we love, are very different from the people to whom Jesus was speaking in this parable. Look, Romans says it like this, okay? 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Maybe beautiful feet sounds a bit weird. Maybe some of you already have beautiful feet if you've been to the May tree recently. But I think that if you take a chance on revealing the treasure of Christ and the kingdom of God, then you might begin to understand what that means. You know, how grateful do you feel to the person who took that chance on you? Maybe it was your parents who taught you about Jesus in the face of a world that doesn't really want to hear about him. Maybe it was a friend or a colleague who wouldn't stop badgering you about coming to church and eventually you just relented just to get them to be quiet. You know, maybe... You know, it was just a person, a random person who you've never seen ever again in the street who handed you a tract or a gospel that changed your life forever. You know, it's tempting to believe that when you tell people about the kingdom of God that you are not welcome in this world. But this parable makes it clear that nothing could be further from the truth. It's the only way to have beautiful feet. Okay, so let's move on to the passage. I want to start by telling you some good news, and then some bad news, and then some good news again. And I'm doing that because I'm a civil servant, so we give feedback sandwiches. So there's a bit of good feedback, bit of negative feedback, bit of good feedback. So it tends to make it easier to swallow. So that's how I've done it today, because I'm in line with civil service values. Um, It's very... I think it's going to be very tempting for, for all of us in different ways to miss some parts of this sermon. So, you know, there were some of us who were going to hear the, the, the challenging news and we're going to ignore the good news completely. You know, but I just pray if you tend to feel condemned that today you will not pass over the full gospel of God who, who, who comes not to strike down but to build up. And, you know, maybe if you're on the other side and sometimes you tend to gloss over the bad news and just have an optimistic view of yourself, then I really pray that today you also would hear the challenge of the gospel. You know, the the truth is that um, we, it's not just you guys, honestly, I find this really challenging too. So we can only get through this sermon together if we're willing to hear the full message of the gospel. He challenges us. And he rebukes us, you know, but he also redeems us and forgives us. He loves us and he changes us. So with that in mind, and don't, please don't forget it as I go, that's what we're going to go. So the first and most important thing to remember is that the kingdom of God is of immense, incalculable value. That was a hint for the people at the back. It is apparent from Jesus' words today that the kingdom of God is worth trading our whole lives for. Now, this parable doesn't hint of why it is of such immense worth, but we can be sure that it's something special if it's really worth giving up everything for. You know, it was enough for the two men to give up absolutely everything that they ever had, ever owned, or ever won, or ever worked for in order to attain it. 
See, there is nothing that is more precious than possessing the kingdom of God. I know from personal experience because I remember not having it. I know for a fact that if you do not possess the kingdom of God today, then you are missing the most awesome, exciting, and essential element of life. More than that, if you possess the kingdom today and you're not availing yourselves of the full riches of the kingdom of God, then you are still missing out on the greatest, most profound, most life-altering treasure that is just sitting right there in your hands. You know, if you possess the riches of the kingdom, then the Bible says that you are a new creation. Think about that. You were once opposed to God, the Bible says, in thought and word and deed, unable to please him. You were once hostile to him and alienated from him. Even if you were a really nice person, and I know that most of you are, the Bible says that we fall short of the perfection and the glory of a holy God, fallen so far short that we could never pick ourselves up. Even now, those of us who follow Jesus can still fall short of his glory. Jesus himself says that no one has ever climbed their way into heaven. And that is why he came down to reach us where we are. What I mean to say by all of this is that we all need very deeply to be a new creation. All of those sins and foolish mistakes, all of that guilt, all of that shame, all those times when we have hurt or abused others, when we have been the perpetrators of injustice, when we have ignored or rejected God, this, the just judgment for these things would be eternal destruction and separation from God. So it's simply not enough for us to put those old things in a box and hide them away and wish that they weren't there. We need something more fundamental. We need to be born again. We need to be made new. We need to be recreated in the image of our creator. If you have the kingdom, all of those things no longer belong to you. You are no longer a guilty sinner in the eyes of God. You are truly free from sin, truly free from shame and condemnation. That old shame belongs to someone who no longer exists in the eyes of God. The Bible says that who you used to be was crucified on a cross with Christ and that the slate has been wiped clean, spotless, white as snow, unstainable. Your account has been changed and reversed from one of infinite debt to a just and angry God to one of infinite, ever-flowing credit with a loving Father. I want you to understand that if you follow Jesus, then your past is in your past and you are free. So if you are sitting here today either as a Christian or not as a Christian, and you are weighed down and burdened by yesterday's sins, even this morning's sins, then the pearl of great price is that you do not have to be so burdened. The only true and real freedom that you can ever receive is on offer to you today. Do you want to be free? 
Do you want those old things to have no sway over you anymore? Are you sick of feeling guilty and ashamed and crushed? Well, today you can be a new creation in Christ. Today you can choose to stop living as if you are that person who was nailed bodily to the cross of Christ and choose to live as a newborn son or daughter of the kingdom of God. If you follow Christ today, then you are loved by God. You are loved by God. Even when you feel unlovable, even when you sin, even when you fail, you are still loved by God. You are still loved by God when you suffer. You are loved by him if you travel the world or if you stay here in Sutton. You are loved by him if you work for the church or in a company or are unemployed, are homeless. You are loved by him if you have autism or schizophrenia or depression. You are loved by him if you are burned out. You are loved by him if you feel suicidal. You are loved by him if you are able-bodied or use crutches or are in a wheelchair, if you are sick or well or rich or poor or powerful or powerless. If you are loved by God, then there is nothing that can ever separate you from the love of God. You are his beloved. Because Jesus was his beloved and he paid to share that status with you. You are hidden in Christ. And I don't mean to say that Jesus has temporarily hidden you. As if God will one day expose you, see you for who you really are and hate you. And go, I can't believe you tricked me. Instead, loved by God is in your new nature if you follow his son. In Jesus Christ, there is no great unmasking because there is no more mask because you are not who you once were. God sees you exactly as he has remade you, even when you can't see it yourself. If it is in your new nature to be forgiven to be righteous and justified. It is your birthright. It is your inheritance to be called worthy by God. Even if everyone else in your life calls you worthless, attacks you, abuses you, and disappoints you, he is always faithful, never changing, always there, always comforting, always for you. God has called you worthy. He calls you precious. He calls you delightful. He calls you special. And what God calls you is what he makes you. And it is what you are. And it is what you will become. So, you know, I beg you, if you are sitting here today and you can't believe that God sees you in that way, then I pray that today you will let the whole world be called a liar and God be called true and faithful. If you follow him, you are who he says you are. You are no longer a stranger to God. You are his friend. You please him. Don't skip over this. You are pleasing to God. 
He is pleased with you. He is pleased with our fumbling attempts at righteousness and our faltering attempts at mission. He is pleased with you when you are asleep and when you are at work. He is pleased with you when you deserve it and when you don't deserve it. And all of that is because his pleasure is not based on what we have done. It is not based on our own inherent worth or our own deserving effort. Instead, it is based on a worth that is imputed to you, that is given to you from Christ, a worth that may never be taken away. You know, I mean to say to you this, that you are the owner of a great and perfect inheritance. And if you don't follow Jesus, then you can receive this inheritance that I speak of today. It is truly the most precious, life-changing treasure that we could ever receive. But wait. Because the parable makes it clear that there is one question upon which our acceptance of this treasure hangs. And that one question is this. Are we willing to pay the cost? We must understand that the kingdom carries a cost. Both the men in today's parables sell absolutely everything that they have. You know, I suppose in the case of the man in the field, maybe we can make sense of that. You know, he sells everything he has and he receives this great treasure and surely that great treasure will replace everything that he has sold. But what about that merchant? What does that merchant have to show for selling everything? You can imagine him, right, going through his daily routine. He's looking for pearls, sifting through items for sale on one market or another, when suddenly he comes across a pearl that is so extraordinary and beautiful that it takes his breath away. You know, he can hardly form the words to ask how much it costs, and he walks home in a daze. With trembling hands, he starts to pack up and fold up everything that has ever meant anything to him at all. He packs away the old pearl collection that once meant so much to him. He packs away his furniture and his fine merchant clothes all into a bag, and he runs out into the street selling it to anyone who will buy anything until in a bag there are coins which represent everything he has ever loved Everything he has ever cared about or hoped for or dreamed of is in a bag of coins. And he takes that to the market. And he counts out the coins one by one. And finally, when the coins are gone, he slips the rings off his fingers. And finally, that not being enough, he hands over the bag that the coins are in and the belt that he's wearing until he's dressed in a shift and nothing else. And finally... He picks up the pearl for the first time. With nothing left to do, he gazes at it lovingly, unable to take his eyes off it. He doesn't think about what he's going to eat or what he's going to wear. He has forgotten his business. His social engagements have freed up. He has finally found what he has been looking for. That story... If that sounds crazy to you, it's meant to sound crazy. 
We can hardly even understand what could possibly motivate that merchant to sell everything and be left with nothing, be left sitting at the side of a dusty road of a market with a pearl and no clothes and no house and no food. But you see, you can imagine everyone in the parable thinking, this man is a fool. But when Jesus tells it the way he tells it, this man is the only sane man in the parable. The parable tells, turns the whole world completely upside down. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. I think the implication for us is clear. Receiving the kingdom is no small thing. It is a grave commitment. If we want to receive the kingdom, then we need to sell everything. You know, it's true, okay? Jesus is speaking in a metaphor here. But to be honest, when I realized that, it was not that comforting to me. Because if this was a literal parable, and all Jesus was saying was sell all of your stuff, and then you can know that you have sold everything and you can follow me, I think that would probably be quite comforting. Because I reckon I could do that and you could check. But unfortunately, Jesus is saying something that is deeper. The parable isn't just meant to apply to our physical riches, but to absolutely everything. It applies to absolutely everything that might make us rich in this life. Absolutely everything that has ever connected us to this world. So, you know, yes, this parable means that we cannot love money and purchase the kingdom. If the goal of our lives is to fill our lives with material things and creature comforts, if that is what we concern ourselves with, then it is not clear that we have sold everything. If we will sacrifice time with our family to make quick money or we will forego church and life group to pursue our career or we wear ourselves out through work that we can no longer benefit from a Christian community, if we will give but not cheerfully and not generously, you know, these might be signs that maybe money means something more to us than the kingdom. But if we won't relinquish all of that, then we can't receive the kingdom. So we need to look soberly at our hearts today. But it's also true that we can't love sex and purchase the kingdom. If we refuse to give up pornography and lust, if we are openly defiant against what the Bible says about love and marriage, then I don't know if we've really sold our lives. If sexuality is our identity instead of Christ, then we may find ourselves short on the cost. And look, if you are ensnared in those things, then I hope you will please today allow other people who follow Christ to help you to break the chains of those old things by the power of God's grace. You see, because the alternative may be to live a life where you never really feel the assurance of your salvation. Always second-guessing yourself and your priorities and your values. And you know, okay, I'm sticking on this point, which is uncomfortable, because Corinthians says this, All other sins a person commits are outside the body. 
But whoever sells sins, whoever sins sexually, sins against their own body. So please do not let this hang over you even one single day longer. You don't need to be alone. You don't need to be in the dark. We are your family, your church family, and we love you, and we're here to help. Okay, those things, maybe they seem obvious, right? They, they can be very challenging, incredibly challenging to renounce. You know, maybe we can see clearly that money and sex and power and, and all of that stuff and prestige are set in opposition to the kingdom. But in these parables, the men sold absolutely everything. Everything that they owned, even the things which seemed good. Everything that wasn't the one true treasure was just in the way. You know, that's why Jesus says things like, anyone who loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. But those are strong words. And they suggest that even if the things that we love more than the kingdom are good, then we will find that the treasure of the kingdom is ever out of reach. You know, sometimes it can be hard to know if we have truly surrendered our family in pursuit of the kingdom. But sometimes it means hearing God's call to love his church and his world, even when it costs our family. It can cost us to get up early and serve in kids' church. It can cost us to go to a life group. It can cost us to invite people who we don't know into our home to share hospitality with them. It can cost us to love the homeless and hungry, and it can cost us to fight for justice for the widow and the orphan. Those things can take us away from our family, but if we are unwilling to hear God's call in our life, then maybe we haven't sold our all for the kingdom. You know, do we seek God when we make decisions about that impact our family, when we move house or change jobs or write a budget? You know, it's very easy, I know in my own life, to not rebel against a God to whom you have not listened. But if we really love God more than our family, then we must think at least as much about what he intends for us and our family as what we intend. You know, let us examine soberly our hearts today. You know, lastly, it's important to see that this grand act of selling everything for the kingdom might mean most in terms of ourselves, our pride, our comfort, and our reputation. You know, I know for myself that I have all too often loved things of this world, loved myself too much, and the kingdom of God too little. You know, it can be as simple as prioritizing, not prioritizing things which bring to fruition the kingdom of God in our lives, such as reading the Bible, praying alone, praying with others, you know, spending time with other Christians, pursuing him. You know, but it can be things in my own life I've seen more insidious, not being kind to people who God loves, acting as if I'm better than people, ignoring God's prompts to love others. You know, I can see those things in my own life, and it makes me ask the question, have I really sold it all for the kingdom of God? You know, I hope this underlines that I'm not standing at the front today telling you that I embody 
the virtues of which I have been speaking are not different to you. I can be lukewarm, my faith can be lackluster, but what I am hope that I am pointing to is that we cannot settle for this. If we excuse and allow ourselves to get comfortable with this type of holding something back faith, then we may be jeopardizing the only purpose of giving everything up for God. You know, I don't want to get to heaven as one escaping through a fire, as Paul says. And I don't want to stand before God and him say, I never knew you as I list all of my achievements, as I list everything I ever gave up as if I had earned the, tre- the kingdom treasure. And I want to be clear, I am not saying that we are earning our salvation or indeed that you can give everything up and then lose the kingdom treasure by failing or struggling. But these parables today don't allow us the luxury of having one foot in either camp. Like so many of the challenging words of Jesus, they are intended to drive us deeper into his arms, closer to the cross and further into our faith. You know, I wish I could preach something different. I wish I could have preached the last 15 minutes in a way that made me feel less uncomfortable because I wish I could ignore it and have, have my cake and eat it. You know, but I have seen the kingdom and I cannot look away. And once you see the kingdom, you cannot look away. You know, I realize all of that Sounds really daunting, but we have to see that the parables we read today don't just talk about the sacrifice. We read about the aftermath. The man selling everything to receive that treasure in a field is doing it with joy. You know, I can imagine that merchant, he no longer goes out to the market every day looking for pearls because he has found everything that he ever wanted. You know, I know we've dwelt on the cost of purchasing the kingdom today for longer than is comfortable, but I think it's only by focusing on the meaning of that sacrifice in our lives that we can truly appreciate the all-surpassing worth of the kingdom. You know, we're not meant to look at those things that we're giving up and sigh with wistful sadness. We're meant to look up from those things from the things that we have left behind and to something that is much, much greater. Because if the sacrifice that we make is great, then the treasure is still greater. Receiving the treasure of the kingdom is the deepest, most perfect, most awesome gift that we can ever have as human beings. It is meant to become an all-consuming obsession. You know, if we find it hard to relinquish those tatty old rags of our old life, you know, I think we need to look again into a life that is full, that is vibrant with his glory, the life that he intends. So now you know both the reward and the cost. The question remains, do you want to buy it? Is it worth it? And if the answer to that is still yes, after everything that I've just said, 
you know, then I have some good news for you. You see, although the cost of the kingdom may be everything, it is not for sale. You see, I'll probably set you an impossible task today. I mean, which one of us can really claim to have made such a total and complete sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom? But here's the thing. As much as we may have committed to the cause of pursuing the kingdom of God, there is one who has given more. That man is Jesus. Jesus is the only one in all of history who has given it all for the sake of the kingdom. And not even for himself, not even for his own sake, but for you and for your sake. You know, although we sometimes love being loved by others more than we love the kingdom, Jesus was despised and rejected by men for you. He didn't love being loved more than he loved the kingdom treasure that he was earning for your sake. You know, even though sometimes we love being popular and esteemed by others more than we love the kingdom, Jesus turned away from the adoring crowds, even stepped down from the worship of angels for you. He didn't love being positively regarded more than he loved the store of riches that he was setting aside for you. Despite the fact that we sometimes love our own comfort more than we love the kingdom, Jesus was willing to be homeless and placeless, willing even to give up the perfect comfort of his heavenly throne in order that he could pay in full the cost of your belonging and your inheritance. Jesus didn't love rest and quiet. He didn't love his own peace. He didn't love companionship. He didn't even love his own body. There was nothing on this earth that he loved more than the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And so for your sake, in order that you may receive the treasure of heaven so that you could have his rightful inheritance, for the sake of you being rich, God sold everything that he had. He impoverished himself, though he alone had the right to be rich. He ruins himself. He was marred, it says, beyond human form so that people would gasp to look upon his physical poverty. He humbles himself even to the point of death, even to the point of the Father turning his face away and visiting upon Christ the punishment for our sin. He even covered himself in our shame, our grief, our sickness and our sin. God strikes his son. God kills his son in order that unlimited riches could pour forth in unending streams from the very throne of grace upon which he used to sit. By all accounts, we were completely unworthy of the price. And yet he was driven by an overflowing, a never-ending, an infinite love to pay it all for you and for your sake. 
You know, in the end, you could interpret this parable the other way around. We like to put ourselves at the heart of this parable as the men bravely selling everything that we have for the sake of the kingdom treasure. But what about this? What if we imagine Jesus is that man purchasing a field or looking for a fine pearl? You know, maybe that's backwards, but in that case, we are his great treasure, and Jesus is the one who sold everything for us. And make no mistake, in the eyes of Christ, you are a treasure. You are that pearl of great price. You are that treasure hidden in a field. You know, and if you'll excuse a bit of poetic license, you can imagine in eternity past, Jesus coming upon you. Perhaps his hands beginning to shake with the excitement of you belonging to him. You know, he looked upon you, apparently ordinary, apparently unworthy, apparently unlovable, and he counted up everything, everything that he had, everything in the kingdom of heaven. He tallied it up until he had weighed it against you and every part of his wealth, and he chose to sell it all for your sake. He sold it day by day in the life that he lived on earth until he was robbed of everything, of friends, of dignity, even of his life on a cross for you. And then three days later, as he had waited, he rose from death and stepped from that garden tomb. And in his hands, for the first time, he held the treasure He held you in his resurrected hands, complete, finally full of the glory that he had seen before eternity of men and women like us being redeemed and restored. And in nail-scarred hands, he held your life and he looked on you and he was besotted by you and delighted in you, and like that merchant, never to put you down again, to hold you, to treasure you for an eternity. But we're going to go into a time of worship now. I don't think we have to rush this morning. But I just hope that as we sing, you will consider that in the kingdom, you are the treasure. Look, There's no stepping aside from the challenge of today's sermon. It calls for us to give it all. But for something of infinite worth and for a saviour who loves us and values us and cares for us and will never let us down. Amen.